Thank you, Abby. Well, uh, we started a three-week, short three-week series last Sunday called Gather, Grow, Go. We do this every fall or have the last several, uh, all six Bethany locations. Um, we, go, we go through this series each year sort of to um, remind ourselves of what is unique to the church, what's important within the church, what's integral to us as a church, uh, what we're called to be and to do. And so last week we looked at why we gather, why we're even here on Sundays, and what, what worship is kind of about. We touched on that theme. And this week we're looking at the theme of, of growth or grow. Um, and to sort of introduce the theme to you, I have a story from my life. Uh, many of you know several years ago, Elizabeth and I bought a house up in Pinehurst, which is just to the, the west of here, one of the neighborhoods in northeast Seattle. We'd been living in Ballard for several years, and really because of the vision of our church to be local, contextual, and relational wanted to be in community with as many people as possible in our community and not just come here on Sunday and do church and then go home. And so we bought this house. We bought it uh, from the original owner off the market, which is another story for another day. But needless to say, she lived there some 60 years, and so it had some character to it. Um, one specific character aspect of this church and the way it ex- or this uh, home and the way it expresses its character is its gardens. So if you've ever come over... We have amazing gardens. Hundred, I, I just, I really think this woman bought the, like she got the seed catalogs when she, you know those, and she would just buy every seed and then plant them all, and she had a green thumb. So like we have hundreds and hundreds of flowers in our front yard: dahlias, roses, irises, peonies, and there it's beautiful. If you ever want to come over and cut flowers, we have like a cutting garden you could just forever, you know. And uh, my wife's over there. She's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> so, uh, and so in the backyard, there, when we bought the house, there were also dozens of full-grown rhododendrons like are in the Arboretum, like that size, so like 12 or 15 feet tall. It was like this forest. And uh, I, I counted, I think, 30-something. And our, gar- our backyard's not big. <laughs> so uh, so to make a long story short, one day I decided to borrow a chainsaw from a, a neighbor, and I cut them all down one by one. And then I rented a... I know. All the nature lovers in our church are just absolutely horrified. And then I got a, a rototiller... And just, I mean, I got all the roots out because I heard that these things can grow back. Like, and, uh, and, and the reason is, is I have a little bit different vision for my backyard than maybe our previous owner did. Um, and, uh, and so to make a long story a bit longer, once those rhododendrons are removed, along the back fence of our yard, we found a little grove, I put in air quotes, it's more like a line of fruit trees. We've, there's an apple tree, a very large apple tree, a couple of pear trees, and this nectarine tree, even a plum tree. And... Um, and they were nothing to get excited about. I'm just telling you right now. Like, they were sick. And especially the, the pear trees and the nectarine tree. Um, they were flimsy. It looked like they hadn't borne fruit ever. And so after a chat with Elizabeth about if those two should be removed, we decided there had been enough carnage uh, for a lifetime, and so we just left them. So fast forward to this summer. You know, I've been injured in, in July or end of June, so I was inside a lot. Elizabeth's out in the yard. And actually, I should say, that's kind of how it is. So... <laughs> Uh, even when I'm not injured, she loves the garden. She's the consummate gardener, and so you'll find her out there. And she came in and said, hey, this nectarine tree, would you f- go figure, doesn't have just one, not two, but like an entire branch of nectarines growing, like a dozen or so, growing across this one branch into our neighbor's yard and uh, hanging over the fence. And so I'm like really curious. So I uh, went out there to investigate, and it's, indeed, there it is. It's dangling over the neighbor's fence into their yard. And that neighbor happens to be a, like, more of a party house, so I know that's not going to, they're not going to care. And they, and they were like, 
small but seemingly edible, very edible nectarines. So being the gardener that I am, um, but um, yeah, so I got the stepladder and I got a little saw and I cut the branch off to retrieve the fruit. I know, because I didn't want my neighbors to have that. Go love your neighbors. So, and uh, now, and I'll just say, right, wow, these nectarines, though they weren't, like they're the kind you get in your little produce box, what do they call that, Elizabeth? The, no, not the CSA box, the one we get. Imperfect, yes, these were imperfect produce, like <laughs> tiny and just misshapen. You'd never buy these in the store, but they were, I, I'm not kidding. If I could have brought one and shared it, I would have, we ate them. Like the best nectarines I've ever tasted in my life. And here's the key. We did nothing for that tree. Zero. Like we didn't water it in the three or four years we've been there. Uh, we, we did nothing except just leave it in the ground and give it some light and some space and some time. We didn't prune it. We didn't spray it for insects. Just, and over time, it began to bear fruit. It's grown. It's It's amazing. And so how this story kind of relates, I think, to our passage this morning and our theme of growth is that growing in Christ, you'll find this little paragraph in your bulletins, is the most fundamental purpose of our lives. We're called to growth. Um, And because our growth empowers us to become, in increasing measure, nothing less than the presence of Christ in the world. His presence of joy, his hope, his wisdom, his love, his serving power, his healing power, when we grow. Uh, But the key is that that growth, like our backyard garden, requires space. Like that nectarine tree was not growing. It needed space and light, and it needed just the things that trees need. And, and like us, we need room in order that we might also grow into the people we're designed and called to be. Um, so taking the context of 2 Corinthians 4, which is our passage of the day, uh, it's important to note the context for that passage is actually, guess what? 2 Corinthians 3, go figure. And the story of Moses with the veil over his face. And that's a strange story. Paul's sort of pulling a Paul Harvey on us there, if you know Paul Harvey, which is like the rest of the story. Let me tell you the rest of the story. And that story comes from Exodus 32 and 34. And don't turn there. I'll tell you real quick, and then we'll get into the, the meat of this. But in, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's articulating the reason behind the practice of veiling, why Moses wore a veil, which is to put bluntly a desire that people wouldn't see him as he actually is. In other words, Paul's revealing the truth behind the story. Moses He's the one who initiated this practice of veiling, and he's hiding the fact from Israel that he was less glorious than he, he said he was or perceived. Like, remember, he comes down from Mount Sinai after getting the Ten Commandments, and his face is shining. And so he says, hey, i got to put this veil on because I don't want you to also burn. The fact is, he was just a man. <laughs> and he, he had man problems. He got frustrated. He got tired. He had an anger problem. He had a lot of sin in his life. And... Uh, in spite of that fact, he'd been with God. He received the law of God. This is Moses, like parts the Red Sea, just a man, just like them. And he did not want them to see that. And so he hid his, his humanity behind this veil, uh, which to Paul or maybe to me is like a force of rhododendrons to, to Moses. It's, just, it's hiding the fact he's nothing more than a man, but he's not growing behind that veil. He's not able to grow. And so what the passage reveals to us in 2 Corinthians 4 is the power of faith when it's unfettered, the power that's introduced into our lives when the veil is, so to speak, removed, when the rhododendrons are uprooted, just to take the metaphor lightly, uh, how light can now penetrate our lives and nutrients and soil can reach us. We need to be nourished um, when there's just simply space and time to grow. We don't have to do much 
God is the gardener. God wants to grow us. We just need to give him space and time. Um, so that's the invitation for us to create that and, and, uh, and identify the, the spaces in our lives where we, we need to grow and, 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 and give those to God in relationships. Today we'll look at that question. What does it look like? What does space for God look like? What would it look like for us to create space in our lives so that we might have room to grow? And we'll do that uh, through 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to look at three underlying realities of growth. And then here's the space. We'll consider a practice that kind of promotes growth in each one, okay? So three realities with three practices. And, and don't worry, it seems like a lot, but it'll go pretty quickly, I think. So first reality is we don't grow, we don't grow ourselves. The second one is we don't grow by ourselves. And the last one is we don't grow for ourselves. We don't grow ourselves, we don't grow by ourselves, we don't grow for ourselves. This should be easy to remember and the practices that go with them, all right? So first, we don't grow ourselves. And this is in verse 7. Let me read this again. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. And so as Paul often does in his letters, he's inviting us into this very powerful metaphor with which to understand ourselves as well as what growth in Christ might look like. And that's this metaphor of pottery. As Christ followers, I mean, we could just get the band back up and play some jars of clay here. Like, we are just jars of clay. We're pots, okay? Now, do you realize how significant pottery is? Let's not miss this metaphor. The invention of pottery, um, I got a pottery minor in college, which is another story, but it's serving me real well right now, just this sermon. Um, <laughs> The, the, the invention of pottery set off a revolution in the world. Before pottery, there was only wandering tribes, um, Bedouin tribes, following their herds of animals, just going from one food supply, one water supply to another, forced by drought and then famine. There was no time for them to develop anything, no culture, no leisure to reflect on anything, no literature. It was just hand-to-mouth existence, um, day-to-day survival. So the, the invention of pottery, amongst other things, but pottery made it possible to store and to carry things, and then to settle down. That's what it did. So food could be stored for the next winters. Uh, like when, when the winter came and harvest is over, you could store food. You could carry water. You didn't have to live next to a water source. Um, cooking could be done. How many of you ever cooked out of a, one of those French clay pots? What is it called? Crucine or one of those... Those so expensive things, like, you know, uh, they're are they made of clay? I think they are. Something like that. Let's just assume they are. So you can cook in them. Merchandise can be transported. Uh, I mean, try to imagine how your life would change. Just think of pottery as a container. If you had no containers to store anything in them, no pots or pans, no bowls or dishes, no buckets or jugs, no cans or barrels, no cardboard boxes, <laughs> No brown paper bags, no grain silos, no oil storage tanks. Think of how our world would change without containers. Life would be reduced to what we could manage in a single day, in a single moment, what we could hold in your hands at one time. That's, that's the power of this metaphor. Pottery made it possible for communities to develop like ours, where life could extend beyond the immediate need, beyond the urgent. So the practical impact of this invention is immense. It'd be hard to imagine a world without pottery. Now, there's something else about pottery that's significant here to consider, which is just as important as its usefulness. It's useful, but listen to this. No one has ever been able to make a clay pot that's just a clay pot. Uh, Every pot also has a form. Pottery is art. Like, there's no pottery that besides, maybe my pots, but besides being useful doesn't also show evidence of beauty. I was telling Amy, I have this, we have this bowl that she gave us at our wedding. This is, we've known each other that long. 
And it's got her, her maiden name on the bottom, and she's a potter as well, and made this for us. And it sits in our, and we take it out for special things and put special fruits in it, maybe some nectarines and things. Beautiful pot. I would have, and there's so many other pots that we have in our home. We had one made for our wedding uh, by an artist that I knew. It, it, pottery is evidence of an artist's hand. I will always remember you when I see that pot, um, which is kind of a prophetic word for us in our time. See, we often separate the useful from the beautiful, don't we? Uh, the necessary from the elegant. We, we use brown paper bags at Whole Foods, right? No more plastic. We use Tupperware when we want to take our lunch to work. Uh, no one bothers to give shape or form. to br- The brown paper bag has never changed. I wish they would change those handles. <laughs> it's just they always break off. Uh, no one bothers to give shape or color or design to those things. They're just functional. We just want something to get our groceries home in, right? Something practical. And to get our, store our leftovers in. And then we buy paintings, artwork, to decorate our walls, right? We don't, you don't decorate your walls with Tupperware and brown paper bags, probably. I mean, maybe you do. Uh, and then we build featureless office buildings and artless factories to work in. And then we build museums to store all the art in. Do you see this? So there have been times, I'm trying to tell you, in history, including 2 Corinthians, where these things were one and the same, when the necessary and the beautiful were integrated. And, and when, in fact, it was impossible to think of separating these two things. And so for Paul and others like him who use this metaphor throughout the scriptures, they use them to describe the people of God, as well as growth in, growth in Christ. He's inviting us into this awareness by of imagination of ourselves as clay pots that were necessary and were also beautiful. You're necessary, you can be of use to God, each one of you is of use to God, but not just of use. You're not just a utility to get used. You're also beautiful. David praised this in Psalm 139. We are each fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe that today? Did you come in here with a kind of a self-hatred, a belief that there's something about you that is just wrong, that is so broken that if people knew your story, they would never want to be near you? Did you come in with that? Because God would say to you, you're uniquely wonderful, you are beautiful, Um, And God longs to use that beauty, no matter what. The God of the universe created everything, created the stars. (laughs) That's you. So like I said, pottery was then and is now evidence of this artist's hand. Um, And that's an amazing metaphor. But there's one more thing about it that gets us to the practice. Because like I said, no pot ever made itself. No pot has ever made itself. There's always behind a potter the pot, sorry, behind the pot the potter, and in effect, Isaiah, God, God reveals this. He sa- Isaiah says this, You, Lord, are our Father. We're the clay. You're the potter. There's a nice, like, rhyme. We are the work of your hand. We're clay. God's the potter. Um, we don't make ourselves. That's the fundamental truth here. We're shaped. We're formed. We exist by virtue of our relationship to God. He is our creator, We're made, we're formed for God's purposes. We're thrown onto this potter's wheel. We're shaped our entire story, your whole story. Uh, Both the parts that seem to you kind of useless and the parts that seem kind of ugly. Remember, useful and beautiful. All of it, part of God's beautiful design. Uh, The Duke ethicist Stanley Harawas says it this way. He says that Christianity is not fundamentally a set of beliefs or doctrines that you, you believe or, or declare in order to be a Christian. We, we actually think that oftentimes. He says to, to Christ, Christianity, to be a Christian is to have one's body shaped. Isn't that interesting? One's habits determined 
in such a way that the only, the unavoidable response is worship. You say, thank you, God, for shaping me, for shaping the way I live my life, for shaping my identity. All I can do is say thank you. Uh, and so the practice here for us, you know, as we grow in our awareness that we don't grow ourselves, uh, Paul suggests in 2 Corinthians 4 that we fix our eyes on the things that are unseen and eternal, which seems like so abstract. Like, what does that look like in my day-to-day to fix my eyes on the unseen God? I've been trying, and I feel like I'm failing. Anyone else? Like, you're standing there, sitting there in your room, fixing your eyes on the unseen God, and it just feels like nothing's happening. Well, see, helpfully, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3, he suggests, in this veil passage, in 2 Corinthians 3.16, he says that whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And I don't know about you, but for me, turning to God is something I can kind of get my head around, because it's very relational, uh, it's, it's, it's physical, it's intimate, uh, as part of his research, the, the world-renowned marriage therapist at UW, uh, John Gottman, he once conducted a study with newlyweds, and then he followed up with them six years later. And his goal was to track divorce rates and, uh, and to see if like, he could find out what leads to divorce. They're, he and his wife are very concerned about this. And as you might accept, many, expect, many of the couples remained together over this period, and just as many divorced over that period as well. And here's the key. The couples that stayed married and and actually were flourishing were better at one thing, just one thing, and this is it. He says he describes this as simply the practice of turning toward versus turning away. So after the six-year study, couples that stayed married had turned toward each other 86% of the time in their relationships. Couples that had divorced turned away from each other uh, as much time. They only turned toward each other 33% of the time in their relationship. So the secret is turning toward, whether that's through uh, paying undivided attention to the person who's in front of you, like put your device down. That'll lead to a, a good relationship, bar none. <laughs> uh, s- spend quality time, agree to listen, be willing to join somebody in an adventure or help them solve a problem or, or be with them in a difficult season, turning toward. There's so many ways you can turn towards people. And, and the promise is when we, when, when we show interest in people, Uh, and express depth to them, there's transformation in that relationship. And so the question this week for you is, how might you apply that to God in your relationship with God? How might you practice turning toward the Lord? Psalm 27, 14 puts it this way. Here's what I learned through it all, all of it. Don't give up, don't be impatient, be entwined as one with the Lord. Be brave, be courageous, never lose hope. Just keep on waiting, and God will never disappoint you. So how might you be entwined with the Lord this week? I mean, it could be through making a commitment to to pray, and I said I know that uh, fixing your eyes on what's unseen is very difficult, but might you be patient and and wait on God in that space and trust that as you turn toward God, he's turning toward you. Uh, It could be through making God your first thing in the morning, renewing your commitment to, to Read and meditate on scripture. Just turn toward God and allow his word to speak to you. Could be through uh, listening to worship music as you commute. We started this, well, I've, I've taken on the commuting in our family this year. Uh, so I'm taking my kids to school in the morning. And on, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday, we're listening. I listen to KEXP because John Richards was a high school friend of mine. And he does the morning show. And I think Soundgarden was on one day. And it's like, it was like loud. And for Marin, this was like pump-up music. It was good. For Elliot, he's like, this is the wrong kind of music to start the day out. And you know what he told me? This is like on the way to school. He's like, Dad, 
Dad, could you change the channel? I was like, well, like, what would you want to listen to? He's like, some of that church music you always play. And uh, I was like, huh. So I put it on, and, 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 and I, t- I kid you not, he started to sing. He's just you know, unashamed, unself-aware, like started to sing along with this music. And we're going to sing one of these songs that we were singing in the car on his way to school. And I can't help but believe that that turning f- for Elliot as a nine-year-old boy is shaping him, allow- opening him that he is fearfully, wonderfully made. And would you do something like that, you know, <laughs> over your headphones, in your car? Like, just forget about who's listening. Have the windows down. Be that guy. Be that woman. Like, it's good. We don't grow ourselves. That's the point here, okay? Here's the second thing. We don't grow by ourselves. So verses 10 to 12. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Now, it's intriguing to me that the Greek form for body in this text is singular. So some translations, New Revised Standard, English Standard, which always tout themselves as like more literal and more accurate, actually translate that verse as bodies. It's actually body. And so the NIV finally got something right. I'm so proud of them. Like, it's so great. That's kind of an inside joke. Sorry. But the point is important. The shared life of our community is to be a demonstration of Jesus. Uh, we did that when we, we dedicated, uh, you know, Luke and Ryan this morning. Like, we say the shared life of this community is a demonstration of Jesus. The oneness of the body is essential. It's an essential aspect of our faithful witness to the world. And that's why Jesus' final prayer was all about unity. Because he said, this is going to be the way the world knows you follow me, through being one. And Paul emphatically expresses this oneness elsewhere in his letters. In Ephesians, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you're called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who's over all, in all, and through all. So one, 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 one. There's only one number in the kingdom of God, even though we talk about Trinity and seven days. There's just one. There's a singularity to Christianity and to following Jesus. And that singularity is often expressed as embodiment, the body. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are his body, his church, the visible expression of Christ on earth. Uh, another story with Elliot, we were driving, <laughs> we were driving uh, up the road and we passed a, a Lutheran church this week and uh, they have a school, he's going to a Catholic school in the neighborhood and I said, yeah, hey, there's another, there's another Christian school there. And he's like, well, what, what's, what's that? I was like, oh, it's a Lutheran church. He's like, oh. And he's like, what's a Lutheran? And I was like, well, it's kind of like a Presbyterian. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And he's like, what's a Presbyterian? And I was like, well, you know, it's a dom- denomination. He's like, wait, is Catholic, are the Catholics a denomination? I was like, well, I guess. He's like, I thought we were Christians, Dad. I was like, yes, son, stay there. Like, don't go where I've gone. It's dark. It's ugly. Like, one, one body. Like, I love these conversations we're having. And see, he's, what Paul's saying is there's an organic union to the church. Um, there's a supernatural relational thing happening here when we gather. In fact, you could sit around like I have this for hours and think about this this week um, and find out in more and more ways in which the body is this perfect reflection of what the church actually is. It's the, the perfect reflection of it. That's why God chose it. For example, take a look at your body. Just look at your hand for a moment. Take one of your hands and look at it. As you look at it, you're going to know right away it was not sewn together, right? We're not Raggedy Ann, Raggedy Andes. 
it grew together. One part grew out of another, grew out of another. It was, there was this organic process that happened. Even for my finger, like a lot of people ask me a story behind this. I'll tell that one another day. It's pretty messed up. I can't bend it anymore. Uh, it's a member of my body. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to tell this story about it being potentially taken off, but it's, a, it's living, even though it doesn't look like it's living. There's blood in there. There's chromosomes. There's DNA. It's all sorts of things that, that keep it as part of my hand and my arm. Uh, in the same way, to be a Christian and a follower of Christ means the Holy Spirit has come into your life. Spirit's regenerated your heart. That's what it means to be born again. That's all it means. And that automatically, instantly, means the very nature and lifeblood of God has come into you. Um, uniting you, this is, this is really important, with everybody else, in a sense, who has ever made the same commitment. We are living tissue. Uh, you're part of the body. You don't ever grow by yourself. There are no singular Christians in the world. There can't be. Um, and this is a vital word for us because it combats two of these prevailing motifs, very toxic motifs in our culture. The first is it combats the individualism of our culture, culture the sort of follow your own passion, chart your own course, course, march to the beat of your own drummer, follow your dreams, find yourself, right? The sort of litany of expressive individualism that's become the dominant note in American culture. Uh, Eugene Peterson says this about that. As long as individualism has free reign in our lives and our culture, we will not be capable of embracing church. Individualism severely handicaps us into growing up to be the measure of the full stature of Christ. If unchecked, it can be fatal and it will fade us to lifelong immaturity. You can't grow up by yourself. You just, it's impossible. Not as a follower of Christ. We need other people. And thus here as part of a local church, we have this opportunity to swim upstream against the current of individualism and declare that we're not just members by association or because of a common set of values and beliefs. That's important. That's good. Uh, we are members of the same body. And in that way, there's this supernatural relational union that's happening here. And, and there's a uniting that's in some way bringing life to us as well as the world around us. And that's God. God can, only God can do that. When I look out at you, I go, wow. I don't know how it could be, <laughs> but I'm so excited about being a part of it. What's more, this notion of embodiment confronts this cultural mo- motif of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Well, you go, what's Gnosticism? That's a weird concept. Well, it's this belief that Jesus and following Jesus is about living outside of your body, about being free of your body. And because we're free, we're free from suffering, because suffering's not good. And we're free from death, because death's not good. Uh, we're free from the world in which we live. This, and, and it's this notion to sort of dumb it down, really dumb it down, that Christianity is about getting your ticket to heaven punched and getting out of this place, you know, this body, this world, which seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. So we've reduced in, in Christian theology the body in this way to merely a biological organism. And subsequently, we have this deep suspicion or distrust of our bodies and of physicality and of sexuality and of suffering. Those are dark things. Those are not things of God. And we cannot pardon upon stomach these things, and thus we don't integrate them well into our faith and our theology. I mean, think of the last time you heard a sermon on sexuality. You never have. Well, maybe you have, but not very often, because we just, that's not integrated well into our faith and theology. We don't know how to do it. And yet Paul says, you are embodied people. He calls us back into your body, broken as it is, and the embodiment of your faith, difficult as that is to do in a broken world. Uh, Barbara Taylor writes about it this way. She says, our bodies remain the best way for God to get to us. 
We need to recognize, she says, when it comes to our faith and the integration of our faith into our life that God loves all of me, all of me. And not just my spirit, but my flesh. And because God loves all of me, God loves all of you and all of you and all of you. God loves all bodies everywhere. There are no bodies that God doesn't love. And while we might have the same, uh, have one thing in common with each other, same language, same skin tone, same stories, we all wear skin, right? We all breathe. We all have beating hearts. Most of us, I guess. <laughs> no, we all weep. We all, although not for the same reasons, few of our bodies work the way we want them to. The vast majority of us are afraid of dying. But our bodies, she says, is what, are what connect us to all other people. It is the one thing. And so wearing my skin, she goes on to say, cannot then be a solitary practice, uh, but it has to be one that's shared, that brings me into communion with all other embodied souls. It is what we have most in common with one another. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are his expression to the world. We do not grow by ourselves. So here's the practice. Joining. So I said turning in the first theme. Joining. What and how might you join together with others in and say, I'm not alone. You're not alone. We are part of the same body. How might you immerse yourself, reconnect yourself with this body? Let's just start here. Um, join yourself to it. Participate in it. I'll give you some examples. Uh, you can participate in this journey we're embarking on with the, the, adding a second hour of worship. Like I said, you can do this through prayer. Uh, the South African bishop, uh, Desmond Tutu, tells the story of a, a, a nun in California that he met once at a conference. And she says to him that she's been praying for him for years every morning at 2 a.m. <laughs> And he says in his writings that uh, in a scientific, materialistic, secular society, that kind of behavior is nothing short of crazy, nonsense. But within the framework of the body of Christ, in which we are all united, it brought him a sort of confidence and assurance that he's not alone. We are not alone. And because we're not alone, our lives, our stories, we can, there's a profound sense in which we're participating in the work of God together. God is working in and through us. That's why we invite you to pray. Don't know what it does, but it's a way of participating. That's why we invite you to pray this morning with Anderson's and the maids, because by joining with them in prayer, you're participating in the life of their sons. Um, you can do this through committing to serve at one of our ministry teams as we, as we launch into the fall. My family, I, not me, because I'm usually up here, do this through our early childhood classrooms. Because my son is nine, my daughter's 14, uh, we can make ourselves available to those younger classrooms. Like, Give those younger families a little space and time so they don't feel so crazy all the time. Uh, so they can be in relationship in this space with other adults and be encouraged. Uh, you all know if you have older kids, it's hard to have young kids. And if you have younger kids, you know it's hard. And we want to, that's one reason to add a second service is to give young families some space so they can be a part of this community in a different way. You can do it through participation in groups. You know, Silas over here is launching some new ways we can work on this in the fall. He's constantly launching small groups. If you're not in a small group of, of fellow Christians, just re rewind the sermon some, sometime this week and listen, please. You can't grow by yourself. And so there's a need for us to be in deep friendships with other people. Uh, he's also starting these things called Bethany Northeast Supper Clubs. Look in your bulletin on this one, um, where we're inviting several families and individuals together in the fall and the winter here to experience the best of what God has for us through the ministry of hospitality. Just eat around a table together, 
get to know each other, rediscover that you are embodied. There are stories around that table that you may not know about and just take joy in that fact, okay? So there's some ways to do that in our church. There are so many ways to join. How is God calling you? And it could be through your neighborhood, your workplace. How is God calling you to join together with others and express that you're not alone, we're not alone, we are part of the body of Christ in order that we might grow, okay? So we don't grow ourselves, so turn to God. We don't grow by ourselves, join with others. Here's the last thing. We don't grow for ourselves. Verse 15. All of this is for your benefit, so the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. In other words, God wants to extend grace to people. That's, his, that's what God's about. And he does that uh, through us. <laughs> as we gather, as, we, as we're growing together, he, he says that, that as we live our lives in thanksgiving and demonstrate who God truly is and what God truly desires, God's grace will be known. And that's, so put more simply, we are not the point of growth in Christ. Uh, as, you know, like, we're useful, we're beautiful, we're interdependent and connected, but we need to recognize, as Rick Warren said in the beginning of that Purpose Driven Life book, it's not about us, not ultimately. And, and so we're the church in as much as we exist for others. That's our calling, to bless, to serve, to be a visible, tangible expression and extension of God's grace in the world. Uh, and the key here is that transformed living is not simply this idea of savedness, like, uh, like I got saved one day because I prayed to receive Christ. Um, but transformed living is fundamentally a new way of, of posturing myself as I lead uh, a new way of living as, and because of my encounter with Jesus. As I move from fear uh, to hope, as I move from guilt to gratitude, from, from freedom to faith, like that's transformation. And Paul says that happens when the gospel of grace is extended beyond these four walls. This is what brings glory to God. Like lives lived in thanksgiving, demonstrating God's character and God's purposes. Um, Lesson Newbegin says it this way, a Christian congregation is a body of people with gratitude to spare. A sort of gratitude that spills over into the lives of all that it meets. I love that idea of having gratitude to spare. How might we have gratitude that spills over from our Sunday gathering and from our gathered life? How might we be people who, here's the practice, bless. God calls Abraham in and says what? I've blessed you to do what? Be a blessing. You're so richly blessed. You got more than you know, more blessing than you know. How might that pour out into the lives of the people you interact with throughout this week? So how might we be a people of blessing? Uh, this, earlier this week, some friends of ours in this church, uh, who many of us know are moving and uh, they invited us, some of us, to come and pray over their new home. And uh, so I got the privilege of being there on Friday night and just being a part of this gathering. An important scripture to them in their journey has been Luke chapter 10, which is this story you've heard me teach on before. It's important to me as well. Uh, Jesus takes 70 disciples and then sends them out ahead of him to towns and places. He's going to go himself. And he says, here's your sermon. I'm going to give you the sermon. I'm going to write it for you. When you enter a house... If they welcome you in and they ask you to stay, all you say is what? Peace be to this house. It's actually a, a Hebrew word, shalom, which is a, a traditional Hebrew greeting. But I read somewhere this week that literally, if you took that word shalom and broke it out into English, you wouldn't say peace because we have weird and ambivalent feelings around what peace actually is. Like, is, are you a pacifist or are we at war? Like, what's that about? 
Literally, you would say, may God cause all to be well with you. May God cause all, all to be well with you. May God cause all to be well with you. That's what it means to say peace to this house. The most, that's the most basic thing God frees us to do. It's a form of blessing. Um, how might we bless people in our lives in this season? How might we approach people and say, may God cause all to be well with you. May God cause all to be well with you. I'm not causing it. I've got gratitude to spare, and it comes from God. Uh, how might we posture ourselves in that way in relationships and just declare peace over people? Uh, so three practices, three realities. We don't grow ourselves, so might we practice turning. We don't grow by ourselves, so we practice joining. And we don't grow for ourselves, so might we practice blessing. We're going to respond now, and I'll invite our worship team forward for this. Uh, and I mentioned some music that Elliot and I have been listening to, Martin and Elliot and I, or actually Elizabeth too. Um, and so this new record, uh, put out this guy named Pat Barrett. He wrote that song we sing sometimes, Good, Good Father. Um, and he has this new album called Canvas and Clay. And the title track on the album is Canvas and Clay. And so uh, we're going to sing that song. Actually, this Sunday, next Sunday, we might continue to do it. Part of the reason for it is the theme, it's thematic to this whole jars of clay thing. Um, but I, I, I want to invite us as we do it to consider what we've heard and just turn, take the first step, the first reality, first practice. We don't grow ourselves. Might we practice turning to the Lord right now? Just consider, take time right now, take a step in relationship to God and just praise him for making you beautiful, for making you wonderful, for making you fearful, for making you useful. And allow him to minister to you right now, wherever you're at. And as God does that, let me pray for us. God, thank you for all the work you're doing in our lives, uh, individually and then collectively. Um, God, I want to confess on behalf of friends here that many of us came in feeling very alone, very isolated, carrying so much weight on our shoulders, uh, wait from outside this world that you've invited us to give to you, to cast our burdens on you. Uh, so we do that now, Lord. Cast upon you the things that are too heavy for us. Uh, and then we turn to you, Lord, in faith. Uh, sometimes you do feel like that invisible God who we just have no sense of your presence with us. So would you make your presence known to us, God? You've been present with us and to us and for us all morning, would that presence become known as we respond in worship? Thank you that you're here to minister to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.